I think people think potentially the Commonwealth Games, it just happened and it was a fluke and it just happened overnight. It was definitely a build-up. Uh, we'd gone to the 2014 Games in Glasgow and finished fourth. That was the first world tournament that I'd been to where the team itself actually believed we were going to win. And I think everybody across the support staff and the players all believed we were going to win. Uh, I think it's one thing, believing you're going to win and then coming forth. I think looking in from the outside, people would be saying, well, how did you think you were going to win and you couldn't even medal? But I felt a sense of just a strong cohesion and unity. And I think drawing on that, just building through the next four years, enabled us to achieve the medal at the Commonwealth Games. Hello there. I hope you're doing well. It's Steve Ingham here and a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. Now, I'm a sports and performance scientist and have supported athletes throughout my career towards the podium and, and have led and developed high performance teams both in sports and business. And in this podcast, I speak to Olympic champions, Formula One drivers, top level sports coaches, researchers breaking new ground, but also people from other performance worlds such as the military and performing arts. I hope you can draw some lessons out or just reflect and draw some inspiration from some of these conversations so that they can help you along with whatever it is that's in front of you at the moment. This week's guest is Ama Aboise, former England netball captain. Now, Ama led the team to perhaps their greatest success, winning the Commonwealth Gold Medal in 2018. There are three features to that win that are really quite notable, and I was keen to explore those with Ama. First, it was against Australia in Australia, so no mean feat there. Secondly, England have never been in a Commonwealth final before and rarely make the final in in various events such as the Netball World Cup. So this was new territory for the team. And lastly, the Commonwealth is a real pinnacle. Netball doesn't have an Olympics, but with New Zealand, Australia, Jamaica, South Africa, basically the top teams in the world competing at the Commonwealth, this was their peak. So I was keen to ask Emma about her leadership of the team. What was different in the lead up, the preparation and in the moments of performing under the pressure of playing the hosts in 2018? I was also intrigued by Emma's own individual style as the leader. What were her expectations of her team members and influences? And how has Emma coped after that high and coping with the lows after missing out on selection from the team altogether last year? A situation that actually affected Amma's mental health. Amma is strikingly candid, open and frank, as well as curious and insightful about her experiences. And it struck me that these qualities were assets that enabled her as a leader in bringing people together and empowering her team to move forward, but also in experiencing moments where she struggled, that she's been active in communicating that. And I expect that she's doing exactly the same connecting and empowering others to move forward. All right, well, I'm delighted to welcome Amma. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm well, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, we're, we're, we're connecting long distance here and we've, we've already tested the, the Wi-Fi to New Zealand and um. Having spoken to Lizzie Yarnold recently, who's based in New Zealand, I hear yesterday a colleague who's who's just moved out there. Is everyone fleeing? 
is everyone fleeing to to New Zealand? What, what what's going on? Is it because you've got COVID under control over there? I think that probably is it. Um, every time I speak to someone in the UK, um, they say, "Oh, we need the prime minister. Just send the prime minister." We're not going to have her permanently. We'll just borrow her. So I think everyone is smartly trying to escape to somewhere where COVID is under control. Just the quarter of that prime minister would be, would do most countries. <laughs> She's incredible, isn't she? But but look, but look in your playing career. Actually, you've sort of you broke away, didn't you? You were you were Bath, Birmingham, and then it just got exotic. It went Adelaide and Melbourne. Um, so are you are you now permanently based down under? You may start Leeds. Um, I <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> obviously very exotic. Um, I'm not um, permanently based here, but along the way, I picked up a husband who's a New Zealander, and so I sort of keep coming back to New Zealand. So every year, at some point, I would get to New Zealand to have a holiday or spend time with my husband. Um, strangely enough. Last year, we decided that we would move to England permanently. And in February, he turned up with a lot of our belongings being um, freighted across. And then we went into lockdown in March. So a strange, I think, thing to happen, given that we'd actually finally decided we were going to set up in the UK. Um, He got back to New Zealand, I think, at the end of May. And then I managed to get here at the end of August. So I'm here for now. But... I don't know what we're going to do permanently. I think we're just going to wait to see what happens with COVID and then make decisions from there. And forgive my ignorance in terms of the state of play for playing netball, because I, I can't keep up with any sport at the moment as to who can do what at various different times. Are you are you able to play or able to train? So in New Zealand, they obviously handled the pandemic quite well last season. So their domestic season, the ANZ Premiership, they postponed it briefly whilst they went into lockdown and then their lockdown was relatively brief and so they then sort of formed a bubble and chartered flights and flew to a central location so they actually played out their season 2020 and they envisaged just a normal 2021 season so I think pre-season starts for them next week and the season starts in April so as long as Covid remains as it is they envisage that they'll just have a normal season, which is very different to in the UK. So they're hoping to have a season in the UK. Um, but I think it relatively depends on what happens generally in the public. Netball in England is classed as an elite sport. The Super League is. So at the moment, they've got dispensation to continue. But I know there's been talk of the Premier League stopping. So I guess it's just up in the air and it's a day-by-day decision-making. So you're on on loan somewhere in New Zealand then. You're, you're playing for an English club on loan in New Zealand. <laughs> it's almost a bit sort of, who's around? Who can we get gather up? It's quite old school. Um, no, so I, I was playing for a UK club last season and then the season got cancelled. Um, and then I came here and actually, whilst I was in hotel quarantine, which you have to do as mandatory for two weeks when you arrive here, Um, I was watching their season finishing, so it was on TV. Um, So their season last year finished, and now I am a free, technically a free agent. Um, So, yeah, I'm just exploring what what I'll be doing. Okay, so some potential uncertainties there for you in that sense. And um, so I'd love to explore some of those 
concepts with you. I'm thankful for my good friend, Paul Dreams, for putting us in, in contact. Um, and there's lots I'd love to ask you about. Um, most notably, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't have a conversation with you without talking about uh, the success in 2018. Um, but can, could you just give us a little bit of a background as to kind of how it started for you? Uh, how did your netball career begin? So I was born in Birmingham and I've got two older sisters and they played netball at school and I wanted to be just like them at the time. Um, I started playing in primary school in year five. The primary school I was at, you actually had to be in year six to play, but I think somebody was ill and so I was promoted, so to speak, um, to the team. And my school teacher, Mrs Watkins, um, saw that I was talented and sort of helped support me um, in amongst, I did athletics a lot, I think, before netball. Um, and then I went to secondary school and um, my teacher, Miss Bexon, again, was quite supportive and Miss Hawksworth was another teacher. And they sort of just supported me in my netball and in my athletic endeavours. Um, I joined, I think I got into the county on the 16 team when I was 13. And England netball made a rule that you had to be 14 to play. So I had a year of just going to training Training's not really my cup of tea, but it probably stood me in good stead. Um, the following year, I got selected and was able to play. And then I got into the England under-17s, um, I think it was that same year. And it sort of just went from there. Um, I played under-17s and then I played under-21s. The first time I tried for the seniors, I didn't get selected. And then a few months later, um, I retried and got selected. Um, and then I feel like my journey people say oh did you have a dream or were you always wanting to play for England but I don't I, I never did um my parents were and are strong um believers in academia and so they were always pushing um the study side um and I kind of I feel like I just fell into netball um and then I guess I'm strong-willed and stubborn some people might say and so then I think I was good and I just had opportunities and I took them and then just carried on pushing. Well, that's, that's an interesting idea then. So it wasn't this idea of that you were born and the first words were netball and, um, and that you pushed everything else out of the way in your life to make that happen. The, it sounds as though as opportunities were in front of you, you're quite cognizant of the decisions you were making along the way, as well as broader competing demands such as studying yeah definitely and I think actually these days I think there's a lot of pressure put on young people by themselves by their parents by their clubs on solely focusing on that specific thing and putting in the groundwork and I do think it's important to lay a foundation but I think there's a lot to be gained from spreading yourself I think at an early stage spreading yourself um, across different things to help with um, concentration, I think mental clarity. You can also utilise skills that you learn from other aspects of your life or other sports. And so I am a firm believer in a variety, doing a variety of things and potentially only honing into something at a later stage. I do think there's the concept of a thousand, 10,000 hours. And so you do have to put in the practice. But I think in sport, a lot of time, there's a general base that you can acquire and it still um, is worthwhile acquiring because it can be put into practice in your own specific sport. Okay, that's interesting, interesting in terms of athlete development then. So you 
saying that you und- you undertook other sports, uh, you, you you participated or you competed in in those. Fortunately, I chose netball because it's not in the Olympics, um, and so I constantly have, I guess, a recurring tear in my eye um, that I, that netball isn't in the Olympics and sometimes thinking oh why didn't I take up an Olympic sport um, actually when the games were in London I um, GB ran a program called Sporting Giants and they were just looking for athletes from sports to transfer into other sports because there's a good correlation of success um, and I kept on thinking I was still quite high up in the netball scene but I just kept thinking I did actually do a trial but um, it would have been amazing to A, go to an Olympics and B, go to an Olympics in the UK. Mm. Um, but yeah, netball is my sport and it's given me some amazing opportunities. And I'm, I'm still definitely glad that, that I did netball. It's just that slight Olympic hope in the background there, just which is not lingering anymore, but it was always there. Well, if there's if there's any consolation, it annoys the chuff out of me that it's not in the Olympics. It's it's one of those bugbears, isn't it? I think maybe maybe it is our specific viewpoint as a Brit or you know that sort of Western society thinking, why why is a netball in there? But uh, I feel I feel your pain there. Um, I'm just wondering whether you would have been a volleyballer or uh, what would you have been? Would you have, would you have rowed? You said you, if you said you didn't like training, then I'm not sure rowing's the one. <laughs> oh, I think rowing actually went at a secondary school. I briefly tried rowing, and actually with the Sporting Giants program, I did the test for rowing, and they said, "Oh, you'll be an amazing candidate." Um, an erg or ergs are not definitely not my cup of tea, but I I struggle with training. I struggle to push myself, but if it's a team thing or if there's other people doing it, I can kind of just about get through. So. I think if I had gone into rowing, I would have hopefully had the mental capacity and strength to push myself to be able to succeed. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it certainly selects in a different way. You've got to have the lever length, but you've also got to be happy that <clears throat> happy that everywhere hurts. <laughs> so does that mean that you were a, a competitor? If you weren't a hard trainer, does that mean, or if you didn't perhaps engage with the training as much as others does that mean that you competed uh, at a higher level I think I I think I was naturally gifted in terms of athleticism and I could apply that and at an early age potentially if you're naturally gifted I think you stand out and so I was fortunate that that was the case um I think as my career's progressed, I've started, I've understood more how, how things work, how much training you have to actually put in. And so I developed, I think, a training capacity and ability as I matured. And I think that's been a godsend to me, I think, because if I'd have carried on trying to go on natural ability, I wouldn't have got to where I've got to now. And so luckily for me, the realisation came in time that I was still in a national program and could still keep in touch. Um, but yeah, I think the natural ability is one thing, but I do think hard work will get you there ahead of natural ability. So, so that leads me to asking about what's changed during the time that you've been competing in netball. Um, my assumption there is that the physical training side of it has become more rigorous. The approach, 
the, the professionalization of the, the sport, being able to earn a living from the sport in itself indicates that you're likely to get um, additional support services. What, what's changed during your time? Significantly changed and then also not that significant. I think, you, as you point out, being able to earn a living from it. So Australia and New Zealand are the best domestic competitions in the world and their players are paid, some of them quite highly. Um, also, if you play for the national team in those countries, you are you get receive remuneration. And um, I think as an English player, it's fascinating that that's the case. Um, in the UK at the moment, the league is semi-professional. So 10 players in each squad domestically um, have to get paid, but there's a very, very low um, amount of money. So you couldn't, definitely couldn't live on it. Even the top players, paid players potentially couldn't live on um, what it is that they earn. And so I think that's definitely changed. So from when I first started, Australia were probably in the beginnings of developing their pathway in terms of professionalism. And I've been, I guess, um, success in terms of an opportunity as a foreign player to go and play in Australia and New Zealand, which rarely happened um, when I was a youth player. Um, in terms of professionalism, the Australia and New Zealand teams have a daily training environment that they go into every single day and they do all their sessions together. Um, so it's very professional. Um, in the UK, they're still, I think they're still trailing in that regard. So you'd come together um, maybe two or three times a week for court sessions, typically in the evening. And then if you could, you would do your fitness and weights and agility and things together. But it's not compulsory because a lot of players have jobs or other things to attend. Um, but it's definitely shifting in the right direction in the UK. And I think compared to when I was an under 17 England player, I never even even thought the fact that I would go and live in Australia and or New Zealand to play netball. It never, ever crossed my mind. And so it's also funny. It's a concept that my parents can't understand. So as I mentioned before, they're all about academia. And I think the first time in 2008, I got a contract in Perth in Western Australia. And I went there, played the season and then went back to the UK about eight months later. And my mom asked me, oh, are you going to settle down and get a proper job now? Um, and I, I just laughed. Um, and then every year for about four more years, she started, um, I'd go back and play. I think I played in Melbourne, then I played in Wellington in New Zealand. And then I went back to Perth. And every year she'd ask me, are you going to settle down and get a proper job now? Um, and then I think she just gave up asking because I obviously was just doing the netball thing. Um, but although actually now she started again, so I think it's time. I'm getting close to retirement. She's asking when I'm going to get... She stopped calling it a proper job, though. She's asking when I'm going to stop playing netball. So I think even in her mind, it's shifted from netball's just a recreational thing to actually netball can change your life and you can potentially make a living from it. I love that. Um, I was asked by my mum once, um, so you're studying PE, even though I was a sports scientist, you're a PE teacher that goes to the Olympics. What, what's that all about? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um Okay, so that's interesting in terms of the the professionalisation, the the level of uh, the leagues in New Zealand and Australia. I remember talking to a guy who was based out of university in New Zealand, and he was telling me a little story about the struggling to find netball coaches 
because when uh, rather than sort of getting to an age where you feel, oh, I can't quite compete at the level I used to, people just kept competing. And there were courts and courts and courts full of older ladies playing netball. And no one wanted a coach. They just wanted to continue playing. And whether it's written into that sort of all blacks culture, um, it, um, it, it sort of indicates a little bit as to underpinning this idea of why England netball, for example, has always trailed or has always had to work disproportionately hard to to catch up because it was always the Australians and, and the Kiwis to to beat. Yeah, it definitely was. And it still is. I think Australia are still number one, I believe, and New Zealand and number two in the world. And I think it is a sense of the culture that both those countries embody in terms of sport. So when I was in Melbourne, you'd see people just going for walks, going for runs. They'd have outdoor tracks which were accessible to the public. And so I think it's instilled in people that sport is part of life and part of culture. And I think that is missing from the UK. There's more and more netball courts and older and older people using those netball courts in New Zealand. And I think in England, there's a massive drop off from um, teenagers and then once people leave school and then when they leave university, there's a huge, huge drop off. And I think in New Zealand, so many more people just continue to partake in sports. So there'll be mothers playing with daughters, playing with um, granddaughters, and it's just a natural, normal thing. And there'll be children on the side of rugby pitches because it's just known that people are going to play sport and they're going to do it however they can. So I think there's a definite cultural difference and that impacts significantly in, I think, the elite end of sport and performance. Okay, so big question then. But with that as the backdrop, um, how? How did you beat the Aussies? How did you w- win in uh, at the Commonwealth in, in 2018? Because the, um, it wasn't a fluke as far as I could kind of see. <laughs> it wasn't just like, oh, we just knocked it in the net and it's, oh, fantastic. It wasn't all the speed skaters falling over and, and rolling over the line. Um, so what was the difference? What happened? It took a long time. So when I first got into, I got my first cap in 2001 um, and England were then saying, we're going to win Commonwealth Games, we're going to win World um, World Champs. And the Commonwealth Games gold came in 2018. So 17 years and prior to that, we'd never won any um, gold or silver medal on a world at a world competition. Um, I think it it took a long time of, I think, shifting mindsets and mentalities. So initially when I think you hear that rhetoric, you're like, yes, yes, we're going to win. And it's easy, well, it's easy to say you're going to win. And then when you aren't achieving as you go along, you start to think it's impossible. You start disbelieving. Um, so I think a lot of the impact that, we made was shifting mindsets. Um, I went to an under 21 tournament and at the time I really thought we could win. And then afterwards I realized that some of my teammates had no, they didn't even think we, they didn't think we could win. Um, And I was really, I was devastated. And I just remember, I felt, I think more upset that my teammates didn't believe we could win than the fact that we didn't win. Um, and I think that stuck with me for a lot of my life. And so 
as I went through the England system, I was under lots of different captains, lots of different coaches. Um, I was playing, I was not playing, I was selected, I was injured. Um, and so just observing throughout um, the progression of my career, just how people interacted with each other, uh, what sort of mindset people had, um, how the team were brought together and those kind of things. And then I think when I got the opportunity to be captain, just trying to incorporate things that I'd learned or seen or just uh, potentially just my ideas. I'm um, just in terms of making sure that everybody felt valued and then also that they bought into what we were doing and believing you're going to win and then coming forth. So I think looking in from the outside, people would be saying, well, how did you think you were going to win and you couldn't even medal? Um, but I felt a sense of just a strong cohesion and unity. Um, and I think drawing on that, just building through the next four years enabled us to achieve the medal at the Commonwealth Games. But it took a lot of work in the background, um, off the court, um, as well as on the court, fitness, um, uh, strength. Um, but then also um, playing matches internationally and starting to get closer to other teams that we wouldn't necessarily usually beat and then also beating them. And so I think with that came confidence and everything just rolled into one and hit that crescendo at the Commonwealth Games. Okay, that's a lovely summary there. Then I'm picking out quite a few things in terms of, for example, if you're if you're getting close to the the, the benchmark, the, the New Zealanders or the, the Australians, if you're getting close, you're starting to draw on evidence to say look we're we're matching them here or whether it's just the the tally of points scored or whether it's we're matching them in terms of fitness or we're matching them in terms of consistency is is that sort of uh, was that a deliberate strategy to to start to sort of build authentic evidence to bolster that that belief that you talked about because just throwing the belief out there and saying look, buy into it. Come on, let's all believe it. You know, that's, that's, a, that's quite false and flimsy, really. It is definitely. And I think I am an information lover. So I love stats and I love, I don't want people to tell me things without a basis for coming up with it. Um, I think initially, though, it is a sort of pie in the sky. We can actually do this and trying to get people on board. And I think initially there would probably be people who wouldn't necessarily believe it themselves. But if you asked everyone, put your hand up if you think we can do this, everybody would put their hand up just because they thought that that was what was expected of them. Um, one of the key things for me, I think, with working with the team was about honesty and trust and not shooting people down for what it is they believe in or what they think. So if you don't believe we can win, I don't want you to say that you believe we can win. I want us to get to a position where we've instilled that faith and confidence in you that that's the only thing that you can think that we will win. And so it was about, I think, irking that out of people, making sure that they knew they were comfortable being themselves, being individuals, just having just a pipette worth of a tiny drop of belief and confidence, I think is all that it takes. And then also the willingness for people to want to move forward and develop. And I think that's a key thing that it couldn't happen if the squad weren't willing to push the boundaries and test the possibilities and work on building 
that belief or even if it was disbelief for individuals at the start. Okay, so that's interesting from the point of view that um, if somebody said, actually, I don't believe, then it's almost the mentality to say, well, why not? Tell us why or what's causing those doubts so that you could potentially pinpoint something that could be worked on uh, as opposed to, well, you don't believe so you're not in the gang. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, only 12 players get to, got to go to the Commonwealth Games, but there's there was a squad, I think, of 27 maybe, and a few who'd sort of been in and out across the four-year cycle. And I think it's really important that you need a range of different people and you don't know who's going to be in that 12 that gets selected. And just because you might be the weakest player at the start of a cycle, you might end up being the best player or in a specific scenario, you might be the person that we need or you might not be on court, but something you say inspires somebody on court to do something. And so I think it's really important to not dismiss people based on their beliefs because people can change. And I think that's the work that you have to do. And as captain, I felt that that was my duty to try and bring together a team of players that irrespective of who got selected to go to the games, they believed that they could perform. Um, I didn't get selected for the World Cup the following year in 2019. And as heartbreaking as it was for me personally, I kind of, it might just be in my head, but I sort of thought, well, I've actually done my job and I've instilled confidence in the team and that anybody who goes to the games should hopefully have the belief that they can achieve success. Um, And I think as a leader, I sort of see myself as someone who, or I try to basically, I think, instill a sense of self-confidence in each individual person so that you don't need to rely on the leader constantly. So that was kind of my, my thinking. And I guess... I could say it worked. It might not have worked, but we won a medal. And so I'll I'll cling on to the fact and say it it did work. But I think constantly having hard facts or stats or data to fall back on is really, really important. Not everybody relies on um, that way of thinking. So I think for some people, it is about how it feels, how they feel, how they interact and respond to other people. Um, And so I think it's about weighing up the balance and understanding what works for each individual. So if it was an individual who required something concrete and specific, then making sure that you pandered to the requirements for that person and just making sure that it was balanced across the board. Okay, so that sort of answered the question I was going to to pose next. And, and that's around sort of your motivational style as a leader, uh, whether whether it tends towards the carrot or the stick. Now I'm hearing individualization, but I'll, I'll try I'll try adapting the, the question to see if, if the, you have an orientation as to would you tend towards carrot or stick there? It depends on people's personality. So some people, if it's if you use the stick method, you're going to lose them. And as captain, one of the things that I tried really hard to do was understand people's personalities and how they performed in certain situations. And if they needed their back to be gently stroked to get them to perform at their peak or whether they needed somebody like an army general shouting in their face. And so, again, yeah, it is very individual. I... I think defenders, in my opinion, in netball, defenders are stick people. They sort of, if you challenge them and confront them, they'll step up and do what you want. And then the attack end are a little bit soft around the edges. 
not saying that they're soft, um, but soft around the edges and they're sort of, I think, more, a little bit more carrot people. Okay. <laughs> We've divided the team. Um, <clears throat> I, I did wonder whether your law background, you know, an active deterrent or or at least role modeling um, would have would have been uh, influential there. But I'm hearing I'm hearing a, a, a getting the best out of the individual aligning to the team. Um, how how much this is quite a difficult question to ask without it it requiring you to answer it with some brutal conversations. But the the selection process, which you've alluded to, can be quite harsh. You, know, you weren't selected for World Cup. I'd love to ask you about your response to that. But if you're thinking about the priority of the team, first and foremost, we've got to get the blend right. We can't just pull our punches. We've got to have people that can be frank here. Um, we ca- it can't just all be um, positive, gung-ho side of things. We've got to have some critique in here. Um, how much were you in conversation with the management and other players about the blend and then thinking, is this person really going to be a positive influence on our team? How was that for you? It did. I think as I progressed in my captaincy, those conversations definitely did happen more um, with the management. And I I think I'm quite, I'm shy, but I'm reasonably outspoken. So I will say what I feel if the environment permits it um, in terms of in a personal situation, I might not say what I feel, but at time as the captain, I think I was, f- um, I was forthright with giving my opinions or putting forward views of the team as I thought they would better the team. Um, and I think I got more and more confident with that as time went on. Um, but I think it's really important in shaping the team that you have the right people and the right personalities. And so I think sometimes in terms of selection and non-selection, sometimes when you go and ask for feedback, a lot of people think coaches might just pick things out of the air and say, oh, it was this, it was that. Um, and as a player, I prefer them to be honest. So it's a really difficult thing, I think, to accept. But if somebody said, oh, your personality didn't quite match with the other team, I would be devastated because it's quite difficult to change your personality. Um, whereas other things you can work on, if it's your speed, your agility, those are things that training might be able to help. Um, but your personality hardly changes. Um, but I think I would admire the coach for their honesty um, and I think as a player, that's one of the things that you want, that you don't want excuses. Because if you tell me it's my agility and I go and work on my agility and become the best in the squad or the best in the world at agility, and then you still don't pick me, then it's just really frustrating. Um, so I think honesty is really um, key in that regard. Um, I think sport is brutal. So selection is part of it. Injury is part of it. Um I've had my fair share of injuries, um, probably because I only started training well um, later in my career. Um, and I, yeah, I've had a lot of ups and downs um, with selection, be it for injury or or not. And yeah, it is, it's really tough. And I think once you set your, well, once I set my mind to achieve something, I, I want it. Um, irrespective and so if it's an injury it's really frustrating on yourself and you put pressure on yourself to try and come back and 
heal yourself as quickly as you can. Um, but non-selection, I think, is really tough because in netball, a team sport, it's subjective. And so as we talked about um, previously in terms of having concrete things and data and stats, um, if there isn't concrete data and stats, me personally, I, I really struggle. Um, but I would, I do appreciate honesty. So if someone said, we just don't like your face, um, I would be really mad. But I think eventually when I reflected on it, I'd be like, well, actually, they've let me know what it is. Um, I can't change my face, but I can keep trying and eventually they might like my face or I can step away and say, this isn't for me because I'm never going to get picked. Um, and so I think it's when you're not in the situation of being under pressure to be selected or deselected, it's easier to look back or to look at it and say, actually, it's great to be objective. It's part of the sport. It's part of life. Um, but then when you're in it, I think the emotions build up. Um, if it's something that you really, really wanted, it's obviously going to affect you significantly. Um, and so I think, yeah, just at the time, as much as you might think about what could happen or what you should do or how you're going to react, you just don't really know. And every deselection or every injury is different. And so you're, at, I guess, a different stage in your life, a different stage in your um experience and then also things that are happening outside of sport as well are different and so the more it happens it doesn't make it any easier I don't actually know if I answered the question there I sort of went off on a tangent can I pick up on that though but I mean um to to sort of jump ahead post post Commonwealth and and that the selection for you you've you've admirably been very open and candid about your struggles with mental health and um, a number of articles that have profiled that. Um, could could you? Can I ask what what happened? How did how did it manifest itself for you? Yeah, um, I it was really difficult a, a difficult time for me. So I didn't get selected, and then I um, did commentary um, for the BBC and Sky at the World Cup. And so I think for a period, I kind of had to put on a brave face, I think, to the public. So I was around the World Cup. Um, fans would could access me and talk to me and I had a few engagements around the World Cup and so I had to put on a brave a brave face and at the time I kept saying it's going to hit me at some point and I, I, I would tell myself I, I said it openly to lots of people and I kept on telling myself but then I think just like I explained in terms of deselection you can prepare yourself and think of scenarios of how to um, how to be positive, how to support yourself, how to not crash and burn. Um, but eventually it did hit me um, and it was, yeah, really tough. And I struggled, I think, just day to day with everything, um, loss of appetite, not wanting to get out of bed. Um, and it was tough. And I think I, I pretty much went through that for the, rest of so 2019 probably um the world cup was in july i think i maybe had a honeymoon period although it wasn't quite a honeymoon um, but honeymoon period in august september and then it probably started to hit me um and i kind of dealt with it by trying to make appointments or meet people or train with people so i would constantly have somebody if i couldn't do it for myself i would have somebody that was not relying on me but 
expecting me to be there. Um, so it might be training appointments or um, I did a lot of um, sort of speaking engagements and motivational things. Um, so just having those kind of meetings in cafes and things. And it sort of, I think, helped keep me ticking over. And then I was also playing um, Super League for the Seven Stars at the time. So I had training commitments that I had to attend and expectations on me, which I think took it away from me. I think, as I mentioned before, I'm a strong critic of myself. And so it took the pressure away from me trying to do things for me and more centred my mind on I'm doing these things because I'm in a team and if I don't train the team's going to be let down and I'll ask one of my teammates to go to the gym with me because because they're there it will help me tick along or I'm going to go and have a meeting with um, someone at an agency about a project that I'm looking to do or they're wanting me to do or I'm working on Um, and I had a responsibility to that person to turn up Um, and then lockdown happened um I was before lockdown I think between January and February I was really really busy um traveling up and down the country training playing games um, and then doing stuff outside of uh sport and netball and then lockdown happened and sort of my coping mechanism disappeared um I love playing netball and I love I can't stand training but I like training like on court with my teammates because I always forget that I'm training and I can push myself. I'm working with people. Um, and that all just disappeared. And so it was just really hard for me to find other ways to kind of keep myself ticking over. Um, so yeah, I think lockdown was definitely tough for a lot of people and I am one of those people. And actually I think the COVID situation is devastating and disgusting for the world but I think one thing that some people might take away is they've experienced being low um, which they might not necessarily have experienced before and so I think hopefully that will help people to have a better understanding of not just other people's mental health but their own mental health and how significant and important it is Um, and so yeah so I'm still working my way back to being mentally strong um I guess it's it's an everyday thing so I just ask myself every day how I'm going I'm during the day I'm constantly having conversations to see how I'm doing and yeah it's just a work in progress yeah okay well thank you for for sharing that and in terms of it sounds to a certain extent or I'm hearing the the sense that you almost boxed it away as opposed to dealing with uh, the deselection, um, perhaps amplified a little bit by the fact that you were sort of thrown back into the the cauldron or the on court to do the commentary in that sense that it's almost, <laughs> you almost have to face it again. I was like, oh no, I've got to watch the thing that I've just been thrown away from. Um, so okay, um, and and so you you mentioned there about self care in terms of understanding that we're going to have our highs and our lows at different times. And if we're all just sort of going along uh, at a sort of a, a middle volume and not really experiencing the ups and downs to appreciate the kind of colours of, of life um, and reflecting today about how you are, are there any particular techniques that or habits that have, have really helped you? Um, I 
I'm a list person. I like lists. So I typically would write a sort of small list daily about what I want to achieve. Um, and then throughout the day, I sort of reflect on that. And at the end of the day, I um, assess to see how I've done. Um, I used to beat myself up for not completing things on the list. Um but now I sort of just try and prioritise what's essential and start with that and then sort of carry things over. Um, it is still quite difficult, I think, for me to accept that I haven't achieved as much as I previously would. Um, and that, I think, has taken time for me to understand that I'm a different person now and I can't keep comparing myself to the Amma of old. Um, also, um, from a psych that I worked with previously um, in sport, he told me to, at the end of the day, to reflect on the day and think of positive things that had happened in the day or that I'm grateful for. So just general things. Um, I've got a niece. And so a lot of the time my niece appears in my things that I'm grateful for. Um, but it could be as small as I walked down the street and somebody smiled at me or, um, yeah, really insignificant things or significant things. Um, and then also another thing that um, I try to do is um, be ni- basically be nice to someone um, throughout the day. So you can, uh, actually a day is quite sometimes difficult, especially if you're in lockdown, but it could be throughout a week. So if you see someone and you like their dress, actually tell the person or smile at people when you walk past them um, and just little things that aren't going to take that much out of you. But I think it helps to make other people feel better. And then in turn, that helps you to feel better as well. Mm. Oh, amazing. I love that. Uh, that. That multiplier in that sense of it's a gift for somebody else, but but ultimately it has a knock-on effect back to you in, in, in making you feel better. Um, and, and so how are you now? I wouldn't say I'm back to my normal self, but I'm a lot better than I was six months ago. And, and um, okay, so thank you for, for sharing that. I really appreciate you. And I think so many people can take a lot from a th- simply being hearing somebody in, that carries the position that you have, the, the profile that you have, being able to talk about it openly. And I, I love that idea of, of gratitude that we're all feeling this melee of mix of emotions at the moment of I feel bad that other people are suffering out there, but I'm not at the moment I'm okay. And, and that, that, uh, that sense of, of strange mix of emotions that we're all going through. It is. And I, I think it's, it's a diff- I've been um, in this place as well. It's difficult because you might not, you might only be slightly affected by COVID in terms of, you might not know someone who's passed away or who's been sick or um, who's struggling, but everybody is their own person. And so your struggles are different to my struggles. So if you have a child at home and you're struggling to support that child and you want to pull your hair out or turn to drink, as a lot of parents I hear saying, that is your, that's your struggle and that's what's difficult for you. And so I can't belittle that. Um if I'm at home and I've, um, let's say, for example, I'm struggling to motivate myself to train. So that's our each individual, the struggles that we're going through. And I think everybody's okay to have 
the struggle relative to them. Um, I found it, especially at the beginning of the um, lockdown in the UK, the first lockdown, I would constantly be telling myself, oh, well, what's wrong with me? Because I'm not working on the front line. I'm not putting myself at risk. Nobody I know has um, passed away. Um, The weather wasn't appalling. It wasn't like zero degrees. And I had a garden and lots of people don't. And so I was constantly comparing myself to other people. And it kind of made me feel worse because it was almost like, well, there's nothing wrong with you. There's lots of people in much worse situations than you. So why, who are you to feel down or that kind of thing? And actually everything is just relative to the individual. So if I'm feeling down because I broke my fingernail, that's the reality for me at the time. And I can't compare myself to someone who's had a loved one pass away. Um, And so I think it's really important that people think like that and constantly tell themselves that. Um, And I think talking about uh, my mental health, I don't actually know how it happened the first time. Um, I'm not very, I'm quite a private person. I don't necessarily like sharing lots about myself. Um, And then I just, yeah, I think someone asked me a question, um, a journalist, and I just happened to answer openly and honestly which I think surprised me at the time as well Um, and then since then I've just been asked about it and I think lots of people struggle mental health is and has been taboo for a long time and lots of people struggle and it does things need to be more out in the open and so that people just feel comfortable talking about it and so I do feel like I have a responsibility to come out and use my position to talk about it and then hopefully it will mean that more and more people feel comfortable just saying and you don't even, you literally could just say to someone, I'm not, I'm not feeling okay, or I'm not okay, or I don't know what to do. Um, I think every single person has times where they might be low in mood. Um, I don't know anybody, even the most bubbly, happy, um, eager people must have a time where they, they struggle. And so I think just constantly communicating and being open is just a great way. I think sometimes, as I say, a problem shared is a problem halved. Um, it doesn't necessarily always work in theory and practice, but I think getting stuff off your chest definitely helps. So it's interesting that 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 idea of camaraderie, we're all in this together and being able to not only just recognise the situation for, for what it is, but also the response. You're, you're sharing their quite powerful emotions and allowing other people to say, I'm feeling that too. And so there are other people experiencing that. And, and so I feel it's okay. Um, that, that sense of, uh, so one of the pieces of work that we did once, which I, I'm, I'm thinking laterally here is, is we used to notice sleep disruption at a major competition. And it was almost the absence or the change in the daily routine. Athletes were training a little bit less. There was a change in circumstances, a change in in, uh, the quarters that you were living in. Um, And that was the bit that disrupted sleep. That was the bit that made people probably get a little bit more noisy around. And we're experiencing a really uh, quite profound but social and public health version of that. Yeah, and I think it is um, routine is really important. I think for an athlete, you pretty much are constantly doing the same thing, and things might change. You might go to different competitions, but you invariably have the same routine. And I think in 
the in netball as your warm up you would pretty much learn a standard warm up and that would be your warm up for every game for that season um so just going through the same motions it helps you to feel comfortable and so um i struggle with sleep and have done for my whole sporting life um and i'm constantly told just get a routine go to bed at the same time every night and even if you can't sleep just keep persisting and hopefully eventually you'll be able to sleep um it doesn't always work but i think finding a routine is i think a really interesting interesting way to look at things and i think personally i've struggled because i think in my sporting or training life i sort of have routines and then in my personal life i'm not routined at all um and so i think it's been interesting trying to balance and manage my i guess it's a split personality my rigorous side with my sporadic random anything goes if i can do anything at any time sort of self okay so i mean like i say thank you for for sharing sharing that um i think a lot of people take a lot from it um we've we've sort of glossed over 2018 and and um you sort of said well all kind of kind of came together and we won um so i was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit in terms of what if retrospectively uh, at least that hindsight bias maybe but just that sense of okay what was your understanding of why did it come together why were you able to beat the best teams in the world what was what was within the team that that you could point to that that were factors that, that allowed you to to take the gold medal it's quite a difficult question i think um i've obviously reflected a lot personally i mean it's quite interesting because these are it's all just my perspective and i think what would be great one day is to discuss with different people to find out what they what they took from things and how they what perspective they saw things from um i think as we just mentioned routine one of the things that we did was just basically constantly try to keep things as similar as we could all the time um so having the same structures before a game getting to the venue at the same um um with the same amount of time available to prepare and get ready for the game it's just like little things like that which um are just standard things but i think the coach was really really onto those kind of things and having having that routine and having things exactly the same for every single game um it's quite difficult if you move venues which i guess happens with different test matches or a commonwealth games but as much as possible keeping things the same um i think the majority of work for the success was done away from away from matches and on the training court but then also i think off the court and just progressing the team together um in terms of that belief that we spoke of and the work that each individual person had to put in to get themselves to be where they wanted to be um i think with having belief um in the team i think once we started to win more games against top international teams and once i think we started to gain public recognition of the fact that we were on the right trajectory i think that then helped um helped with motivation and helped with us 
understanding that actually it what it's a possible and it's achievable. And so you've got momentum going into the tournament. Um, I, I presume that that was felt in the early rounds that you could kind of feel the form. How was it going into the final? So I think a key thing that I had reiterated in the group were working on was just being focused on every game as it comes. So you can't get to the final without beating the team that you're playing. And I think we'd, in a previous competition, we'd maybe made the mistake of, okay, we're doing quite well and now we're going to play this team, but we're going to look ahead at the next game and who we're going to be playing and analyse them and those kind of things. Um, And having fallen foul of that previously, I definitely didn't want that to happen. And so it was just really important taking each game as it came analysing that team as best we could, um, having done the work beforehand and then sort of, because it's day after day, having the opportunity to do brief bits of analysis and formulate game plans ahead of time and then revisit them just be- the day before the game. Um, I think that was really important and we kind of got through each game and then somehow found ourselves in the final. Um Having never been in a final before, I think everybody was just ecstatic and the routines of standard, let's do the same thing, get the same amount of sleep, um, do the same routine that you do before going to bed, wake up with the same number of hours ahead of playing and all those things sort of went out of the window. Um, And so I just remember struggling, thinking I, I guess in my in my non-sporty life, I'm quite sporadic and random and will go to bed at different times. Um, but I know that a lot of the girls need to have a set amount of sleep and respond differently depending on how much sleep they've had, um, how much recovery they've had, if they've eaten the right amount of protein, carbs, etc. Um, and so I was really worried, not for myself, but for the other players that they weren't stick into the routine that they they used to um and I think obviously it's amazing getting to a final and we were all excited but adrenaline can only take you so far and that's not going to carry you for 60 minutes of a netball match and so I definitely worried about the fact that we're going in having not experienced the kind of exhilaration and lack of recovery that I think we we had um but then on the day it was just all about we've got a job to do we're here now so we might as well win it um and the edge yeah, just playing not looking to the end result just playing the mo playing in the moment um there's no point like I don't understand everybody wanted to, I guess everybody on that court or involved wanted to win the Australians wanted to win just as much as we did and it was about just doing what you had to do in that moment. And then the next, when the next moment came, doing the same thing. And it was, a, we only won by one, so it wasn't very many, but that that's enough. You only need to beat the other team by one. And I just think the Australians, to a certain extent, expected to win. I think because they were on home soil, um, they'd earmarked the netball medal as a medal that they were likely to win the gold um, prior to the games. Not necessarily the netballers, but Commonwealth Games Australia. Um, I think going into any major tournament, you sort of earmark medals that you're going to win. And netball was a gold medal that they thought that they had their hands on. Um, 
And so I think that sort of belief that they kind of had it in the bag. I think when it wasn't, basically every World Cup and Commonwealth Games final has been played between Australia and New Zealand. And so I think when it wasn't New Zealand, Australia pretty much thought, oh, well, England have never been here before, so that's all right, we'll beat them. Um, And I think we came in with a different mindset of, it's just another job that we have to do. We have beaten this team in the past. Um, Forget about where we are, forget about the crowd, that's probably going to be significantly against us. Just do the job that you have to do in the second that's in front of you. And somehow we managed to win. Well, it's interesting listening to you describe it because um, it talks to being really present in the moment, not thinking about tomorrow of what might come next and after this, or even as small as not thinking about the outcome of the overall match, thinking about the moment. And a lot of performers talk about, talk about almost the surprise because they are so focused. I'm focused on this now and and support staff and team operations, minimizing those distractions that allow you to, to focus. And it almost then feels like you surface. Um, and, and I don't know, I, I, my memory of watching the match was that moment that the umpire called with just a few seconds to go. Um, and, Helen Housby takes the, the retakes the shot. The bench just the eyes lit up <laughs> of oh now this is the moment. <laughs> is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, definitely. I think for you, like it's the 17 years that and that's the 17 years in the senior squad. When I was in the under 21s and under 17, they were saying the same thing about the senior squad. So for over 20 years, being told we want to win a gold medal on the world stage. And I think for the times when you didn't quite believe or you were struggling to train or get up in the morning or everything, it's almost like a realisation that, oh my gosh, it is actually possible. And I think as much as you believe and you tell yourself, this is it, we're going to win, the reality of winning actually just comes as a, a surprise. And I think a good visual image, as you said, was the bench when we won. But also I think some athletes when they cross the finish line and they've won and it's almost like a look of like shock horror disbelief and as someone spectating in those athletic moments let's say for example it's Sir Mo Farah or David Jessica in its hill and they cross the line and they the image that you get of them is like what's wrong with you like did you not think you could win like we all thought you were, we knew you were going to win but actually I think because of the the way you have to focus so intently on just what you're doing in that moment, you know the end goal and you've kind of foreseen the end goal in your mind's eye as you've been building up to whatever situation it is. But then when you're going through the process, you have to focus so much on getting there. And so it is just, it is just shock. And I think the longer that that has been, the more, I guess horrified, horror is probably not a good word, but the more it basically just slaps you on the face, a realisation that we've talked about this, we believed in it, and it's happening. It's just incredible. Oh, and 
it was such a moment. So congratulations, because it was um, such an exciting match to watch, which didn't help at all. Like you say, it would have been much better if it was a boring sort of, well, we just walked away with it. Um, but it was to and fro, and it went down to the wire, just as the the hockey girls in 2016, that it just built and built and built to that final <laughs> second. You could, you could probably wish for a boring one, couldn't you? Yeah, it's true. I think... Uh, on- on the receiving end of a gold medal, you'd prefer to have just a, a chilled out. We were winning from the beginning easily, comfortably, and then we just got the medal. That would definitely be the, the easier way on the on the nerves. Um, but I guess it's <laughs> nice, I think, now that I think the tension that was created actually helped to make it even more special. And I think engaged people who didn't necessarily connect with netball, I think the way we won is what sort of kind of captivated the nation. So I guess my nerves would just have to be cast aside. And it, I think it was great for netball that it was, it, it was the way that it was. It's getting late there now. So um, I've, I've got to leave you to, to sleep at some point. As you see, you've got sleep disruption. So you need a routine. Um, what, what's, what's next for you, Emma? Interesting question. Um, I think I had some... Well, actually, I was going to say I had some idea of what I was going to do in 2020. Um, I didn't. I just knew that I was going to be living in the UK. And now that's sort of been disrupted um, a little bit. And so I think I've gone back to sort of just going with the flow. Um, my life, I think, has been a very much go with the flow kind of life. And it's probably time that I grew up and set plans and sort of, yeah, I think did things, but I think it's hard to change the habit of a lifetime. Um, because of COVID, I'm sort of trying not to make plans because no one knows whether that you're going to be able to keep them. Um, I would at some point love to get that proper job that my mom keeps talking about. And I don't know whether that's um, <laughs> in law or um, I do mediation, mentoring, coaching, um, I don't know, politics, um, commentating, presenting. Um, I guess there's lots of options, which apparently is a good thing. Um, to me, it just seems like a headache. I want to do everything and apparently that's not possible. Um, so yeah, so I'm just still trying to figure out what, what life has in store for me next. Um, I'd like to have a family and try and correlate that with whatever it is I do career wise. Um, but yeah, I think just working on my, working on my mental health, um, I think netball has done so much for me, so it will be great, I think, to give back to netball. Um, I still play, or I'm trying to still play. Um, so I think hopefully I'll be one of those older women on the courts of New Zealand or England, wherever I am, um, still playing. Um, but yeah, I just think there's so many opportunities that, sport has given me and I just hope to capitalise on them um, and look back and reflect and say actually I enjoyed my life, I took opportunities when they came to me and earned some money because I think netball's not that high a paying career and so it would be nice to earn a comfortable living I think that's probably, <laughs> my husband will be happy that I put that in because I'm always saying oh I'll just do it for free and he's like no 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 you've got to put a roof over your head um, so yeah, just mm. no set, 
nothing set in stone, which I think is people who know me and are listening will be like, oh yeah, that's just typical Emma. Um, but I, it's got me to where I've got to now. And so it's kind of not too bad a way of living. Sounds like it's come coming full circle in terms of just sensing and staying aware of, of what opportunities might arise as opposed to those set firm plans at the moment. Well, it's been amazing listening to you, hearing your approach to leadership. And if, if politics is, is, a, is a potential, then, well, um, I'll, I'll vote for you. Um, <laughs> well, it's funny, actually, so many amazing leaders have come through from netball, like Sue Campbell and Liz Nichol and Rosie Mays. It must be, a, must be a, uh, like a training school for leaders of tomorrow. So let's let, do it. it Jacinda, <laughs> um, Mark too. <laughs> thanks will you give me a reference well listen thank you so much for sharing your experiences all the 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 ups and downs and the nuances of that and sharing your expense uh, your experiences of the the successes so thank you Amber, for joining us thanks so much steve want to follow Emma on Twitter or Instagram then give her a follow she's Emma Abweze that's A-M-A-A-G-B-E-Z-E you can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and support underscore champs and we're on LinkedIn and Instagram under supporting champions too if you're looking for some coaching support or some virtual team development to help you go to the next level in work life or sport then take a look at supportingchampions.co.uk forward slash coaching hyphen mentoring. 